Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. <laughs> and I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. What have uh, what have you been up to since we last spoke, Matt? I've been working on my other podcast, The Secrets of Story with James Kennedy. When we were guests on the Marvel Evolution podcast, I mentioned there that I've been reading a lot of Micronauts. I'm loving Micronauts. I'm a big Bill Mantlo fan, but it's funny. You get to the first Micronauts annual, and this is 1979, maybe late 78, early 79, and it is penciled and inked by Ditko. And it's a prequel to Micronauts number one, which was penciled by Michael Golden and inked by Joe Rubenstein. And it is terrible. And yeah. all this time I've been saying like, well, Dicko didn't really turn bad until other people were inking him in the 80s. Well, this is Dicko in the 70s inking himself. And it is terrible. You said it right next to the Michael Golden issue that it is a prequel to. And there is just no way you can defend it. I'm like, what happened to this man? We've been saying like, well, we didn't like him as kids because he wasn't making himself for various other reasons. And it's not clearly a different person. It's not like a switch flipped, but just he shaded into all of the qualities that I didn't like about him growing up were there in the 60s, but I love them in the 60s. And they just, they switched and flipped, but it, it crossed a Rubicon at some point. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that a lot of artists, a lot of comics artists in particular, have a tendency as they get older to kind of just fall into a rut isn't quite the right word, but just fall into familiar habits and the creativity and energy and challenge of everything that really seem to energize their work when they're younger often, and not in every case, not for every artist, but for lots of artists, seems to kind of slip away and they just become essentially almost like a pastiche of all of their most notable art habits. And I certainly think imagination is a big part of it because the golden Micronauts issues seem more Dicko than Dicko. He's clearly being influenced by Dicko in terms of creating these this wild fantasy world, this wild science fiction world. And then Dicko comes on and he's not bringing any of that imagination to it. Certainly, I think he was beaten down by the events of the 60s and mm -hmm. was, to a certain extent, just phoning it in, even when he was penciling and nicking himself in this issue from 1979. It's it's a heartbreaker to see. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, on my side, my daughter uh, now has a, uh, a job working in a kitchen at a local restaurant. Mm -hmm. which, you know, she wanted to work here. She didn't want to work in, in um, customer service on anything. She didn't want to be a hostess or anything like that. She's just like, no, if I have to deal with the public, I will not work long. <laughs> I, will, I will be fired quickly. But she's always loved cooking. She's excited to be able to, you know, actually be working in a commercial kitchen at this point. Exciting. It's, yeah, it's a great local restaurant that we've liked for years and years, uh, run by a really, really great woman. And it's within biking distance of the house. So she's been biking back and forth to her. Uh, kitchen job. Well, I hope this does not lose you one of your favorite restaurants. I hope that uh, <laughs> when, when everything goes down, that uh, I hope you still feel that you can show your face there. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I, I have no shame. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let's go ahead and get into it. I believe you are taking the first one here. Yes. Let's go ahead and jump in here. Amazing Spider-Man number 23, The Goblin and the Gangsters. So once again, 
no new characters, just reusing the existing characters he created. He knew he had created a bunch of great characters in the first 15 issues of this comic, and that now he could just use them over and over again for the remaining 19 issues that he had to go. Very nice cover, Green Goblin fighting Spider-Man. It's unclear if that's Spider-Man's web that he's trying to tangle Spider-Man up in, or if that's some sort of separate netting. Oh, I assumed it was his web. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's weird that it would be working that way. Yeah, I don't know. But that definitely looks like his web to me. Yeah. Until we find out the Green Goblin's secret identity, he spends a lot of time trying to take over the rackets. He spends a lot of time trying to take over the gangs in town. And then as soon as we find out his secret identity, that like never comes up again. As soon as we find <laughs> out his secret identity, he just wants to kill Peter Parker. He just wants to kill Spider-Man. The whole idea that I, Norman Osborn, am going to try to take over the rackets and be the head gangster is sort of forgotten. Now, there, it does get a little awkward when, like, later he thinks he's killed Spider-Man and then he's still flying around as Green Goblin. It's like, well, what does Green Goblin want, dude, if he thinks he's killed Spider-Man? Which happens a couple of times. But anyway, at this point, we don't know who Green Goblin is, uh, although we do get our first possible glimpse of Norman Osborn in this issue. But we have Green Goblin trying to take over the rackets. This is, of course, Stanley seemed to cover at Semek. We begin with Lucky Lobo, who is a gangster, and Green Goblin shows up and says, I want to take over your rackets. Under my leadership, we can take over every racket in the city. And Lucky Lobo says no, so then Green Goblin takes off. We then have Peter Parker, who wants to put on his Spider-Man costume under his outfit, but it's still wet from when he washed it the night before, so he can't. He then goes into work, and he finds on Betty Brandt's desk a letter from Ned Leeds. And it's, a, it's from Ned Leeds, a reporter who used to date Betty a few months ago, but I thought things were all over with them. Then he sees that J. John Jameson is rehiring Frederick Foswell. So this is an interesting sort of saga that goes on in this comic from, like, issue 10 to issue 50 of the saga of Frederick Foswell. And this is pretty clearly an instance of J. John Jameson just being a good guy. Like, there's no, I kept waiting for, like, the other shoe to drop in this issue where it's like, he's like, oh, here's my, you know, selfish reason for rehiring Foswell. Like, Foswell says, you mean you'd let me have a job here again as a reporter? Because last we saw him, he was revealed to be a secret mom boss. And J. John Jameson says, sure, I guess I'm just soft-hearted. But then that seems to just be the case. He seems yeah. to just be self-hearted. Jameson does say, and besides, it'll be good for my public relations. It'll build up my image as a lovable do-gooder. But, I mean, that almost sort of sounds like somebody who is sort of embarrassed of doing something that is, you know, yeah. <laughs> magnanimous, uh, but doesn't want to come across as such. Yes. Uh, yeah. But then uh, Peter, he goes to Betty expecting Betty to then tell him, like, I got a letter from Ned Leeds, and she doesn't, and so he's really pissed. And, of course, she has no idea why he's so pissed. After he leaves, she thinks to herself, oh, dear, I forgot to tell him about Ned's letter. Well, it's too late now. I'll mention it to him some other time, like, a little late for that. Although, although what, what obligation is she under? <laughs> I mean, this is, nothing's ha like, oh, no, I didn't tell him. I betrayed him. No, you just got a letter, and you have, anyway, whatever. But it's also understandable that if you saw that letter on her desk, you'd freak out and unless she's like, oh, funny thing, I got a letter. But so then Peter wants to follow Foswell because Peter doesn't trust Foswell, but he realizes he doesn't have Spider-Man costume on, so he can't do it. Meanwhile, we see J.J.R. Jameson at his club, the Midtown Business Executives Club, and there is someone at the Business Executives Club who does not speak and is not named, but looks an awful lot like Norman Osborn. And according to some people, this is his first non-Green Goblin appearance. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? He really does. Yeah. But right. Foswell comes by and says, oh, I've found out about where the bad guys are. J.J. Jameson's got here. Meanwhile, Spider-Man finally has dry costume. 
he is flying around. He's looking for Green Goblin, runs into the Green Goblin, chases him. Green Goblin says, great, follow me. I'm going to fly to Lucky Lobo's headquarters and fly out the other window and leaving Spider-Man to fight Lucky Lobo, which Spider-Man then does. At first, Spider-Man's like, oh, I guess Green Goblin's going good and he's helping me fight Lucky Lobo. But of course, Green Goblin's just peeking <laughs> in the window going like, yeah, I hope you all kill each other. There's a wonderful sequence of Spider-Man finding Lucky Lobo's people in all sorts of inventive ways. And then a delightful sequence in which he ends up trapped inside a room, webs up the door so that they can't get in. And then he decides he's got enough time to just take off his mask and call Aunt May. And he calls into Aunt May and it's like going up. Looks as though I might be a little delayed tonight. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you didn't forget to call. Now I won't put the potatoes in the oven yet. And he finishes talking to her and then hangs up. And then they burst through the door. And then he's like, oh, I guess he got me, folks. But he's covered the ceiling in webbing, which falls on them. And they all get webbed up. He then webs everybody up some more. He goes after Green Goblin. They fight for a while. Have a very nice fight. Spider-Man runs out of web fluid, so Green Goblin gets away. Then Green Goblin is like, oh, now I'm going to be able to take over Lucky Lobo's gang. But then he hears on the radio that the entire gang has been arrested. And he says, the entire gang? Then it was all a waste. I was too successful. If the whole gang is in jail, I have nothing to take over. I'm no better off than I was. He was too successful. <laughs> At some point, he realized he's a rich industrialist and doesn't need to be taking over any gangs. Meanwhile, Peter goes back to JJJ, is still suspicious of Foswell, and then still hoping to hoping that Betty will mention the letter to him <laughs> and they have the most wonderful <laughs> passive-aggressive conversation. It's just a beautiful panel drawn by Pencil and Inked by Dicko. And, and so, the, of course, JJJ wants pictures from Peter and Peter doesn't have them. JJJ and Jameson is furious. And then Betty says, too bad you disappointed him about those pictures, Peter. And he says, well, lots of people disappoint other people, Betty. <laughs> she says, what do you mean by that? And he says, oh, nothing, skip it. <laughs> yeah this is uh this is you know peter parker the prick rather than the spectacular spider-man <laughs> yeah they, he then is passive aggressive does not say anything goes home he's worried he's upset at me but he has not and then he's just sitting there in his chair with venetian blind shadows behind him going why what's come over me why am i so itchy my school grades are still the tops of my class Aunt May has been doing fit as a fiddle but he just probably forgot to mention Nidalee's letter. And yet I have a strange feeling, a feeling of foreboding. And so some terrible danger is waiting just around the corner. And then, of course, you have Stanley finishing by going, that yes, there will be some terrible danger next issue. But whenever he does that, I always get the feeling that Stan is just lying and Stan has no idea what's going to happen next issue. And he's just, <laughs> he knows he's pretty safe to say that something bad will happen in the next issue. <laughs> It's a little frustrating that Spider-Man, that every confrontation Spider-Man has with Green Goblin is inconsequential, that he's never caught him. Obviously, they want to keep the mystery going of who he is. And I think that's good. I think it's fun. I think it's worth it. But it does mean that the Green Goblin appearances are a little bit frustrating because everything, you know, nothing. He never seals the deal. But I, that's the only other thing I had to say. What do you have to say about this issue? You handed it well. One thing I do want to point out is that the way that... Ditko designed the goblin's mask. It looks like he has just gone way overboard with the Maybelline on his eyelashes. <laughs> There's a great, there are two great shots of it. I'm going to point out uh, page nine, panel two, <laughs> just like, Maybe he's born with it. <laughs> growing up as kids, Green Goblin was pretty much a done deal at that point, And it was the Hobgoblin who was the big thing. And, you know, the Hobgoblin always looked much more visually cool and menacing to my eyes. And, you know, this is kind of part of the thing about it. You know? yeah. 
His, his face just looks kind of silly, and he's got a stocking cap on. Of course, you know, the Green Goblin is a better villain than the Hobgoblin was, although they, you know, yeah. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, and I think as soon as John Romita Sr. takes over the art, he basically turns that into very thick eyeliner rather than mascara, which somehow works a little better. Yes. You know, it, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. but then in that panel, the Green Goblin is saying, it shouldn't be difficult to get some bumbling costumed fool to do my dirty work for me. And it's like, <laughs> you're complaining about other people's costumes. You're saying other people look like fools in their costumes. Like, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, pot. This is kettle. Okay. One more thing. Yes. I should point out that there is a letter in this issue from James Shooter of Bethel Park, Pennsylvania. James Shooter is, I believe at this point, 14 years old, and it's mere months away from getting hired to be the writer for Legion of Superheroes over at the Distinguished Competition. He is about to become uh, the 14-year-old writer of Legion of Superheroes, but at this point, he is still just a fan, and he will write for DC for about five years and then move over to work at Marvel when he's around 19. But I'm pretty sure this is the Jim Shooter. I know he grew up around that area of Pennsylvania. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. This has to be him. Jim Shooter is complaining that they're making Spider-Man too powerful and also says that goes for all your Marvel heroes, especially that arrogant Thor uh, <laughs> <laughs> and saying that they've made Spider-Man too popular with the public. It's like, hey, isn't he wanted by the FBI? Has been charged with arson twice? Is wanted on several damage charges? Yeah, yeah. All this kind of stuff. So, um. Anyway, but it's it's interesting to have the guy who would eventually end up essentially literally being in charge of Marvel Comics in, you know, what? Well, let's see. This was 65 in 15 years. Yeah. (laughs) Saying this is what you're doing wrong. Okay, so we're going to move on to Daredevil. So this uh, is Daredevil number seven. And right on the cover, you see that we've got a big deal of an issue here. Two things. One, Daredevil is fighting Submariner, who is one of their A-list characters. And two, did I say A or did I say one? Anyway, A and two, <laughs> we see that uh, Daredevil's got a new costume. So yes. this this is the costume that will stand him in good stead pretty much from here on out. Every now and then they'll have him, someone will be like, ooh, let's put him back in the yellow and black one. Or, you know, it'll be like, oh, he's going to have armor for a little bit. But for the most because part... Because it was the 90s. Well, yes. But for the most part, this is going to be his costume from now on. And it really won't change at all. Yes. <laughs> Wally Wood did a great job on this one. On the uh, newspaper on the cover there, planarians give new clues to early migrations. That's a weird subheadline. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by when people create fake newspapers. What are the other headlines on the newspaper? Have you seen that thing where people have zoomed in on shots uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation, which was, you know, made to be played on standard definition TVs back in the 80s, and the placards above doorways that people walk through usually says, like, you know, engine room, and then it looks like there's some, like, type underneath that. If you zoom in, it's things like, the lyrics to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Literally, in the photo that I saw, it was, you know, sit right back and I'll tell a trail, a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. Uh, yeah, so apparently if you zoom in on those, because uh, they never thought that someone would be able to do that. 
That's funny. Okay. Uh, we start out with a big splash page, which really is Wood playing into his strengths. I mean, this is something that would be right out of his EC days here with uh, Submariner on his throne. Uh, you see all sorts of uh, sea life and uh, his, his legions behind him. Got use of uh, Zipatone back there, or I think Wally Wood usually referred to it as Benday Dots. Written by the master of the spoken word, Stan Lee. Drawn by the master of the printed picture, Wally Wood. Lettered by the monster of the blurb balloon, Artie Simek. This is an absolutely gorgeous splash page. This is the best Wally Wood has looked on Daredevil yet. Clearly, he does not belong on Daredevil. He belongs on Submariner. He belongs on something where he gets to draw something splendiferous. Yes. Uh, no, he would be great if they were doing a Namor series yet, which I guess they're going to be doing soon. I mean, honestly, that splash page there is, I think, the best work he did the entire brief time he was at Marvel. Uh, it, it's just really, really spectacular. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we see uh, Warlord Krang, and we've met Warlord Krang before, right? Yeah. He he yeah. went all the way back to the first uh, the first Fantastic Four annual. Krang is saying, "Hey, Namor, why aren't you attacking the surface people? You know, you you, you should be uh, tr- helping us reclaim our birthright that we originally came from the surface, and we." deserve to rule up there i don't think that's really come before or since the whole thing about oh yes well we used to live on the surface and we want the surface back no Um, that that felt like that was new yeah and and not and didn't catch on so mariner shows up and he doesn't want to have war you know he is noble enough to be like i don't want to just go ahead and start a war of conquest lots of death and destruction so he figures i'm going to use the law so he walks into uh new york city we see a lot of great shots of him doing his arrogant stride through the city and ripping things open when they weren't immediately like he wanted them and then he just says All I need is a lawyer to access this human law system, and it doesn't matter who it is. I am Namor. I will, you know, be the one basically uh, driving this car. So he, of course, happens to run into Nelson and Murdoch. But this is not the first time we have had. As a matter of fact, this is the only way we have ever seen anybody hire Nelson and Murdoch so far (laughs) is it matters not to me who my lawyer is. I will choose a lawyer at random. I will happen to choose the only superhero lawyer in town. And, you know, boy, are Nelson Murdoch ever going to actually get a client who cares who their lawyer is and is therefore hiring (laughs) Nelson and Murdoch? It's got to be a little humiliating to them to have everybody go like, I don't care, my lawyers, I'm hiring you. Yeah, exactly. Nelson and Murdoch say, well, you know, uh, that sounds like, I mean, believe me, this would make us famous and rich if we could take this case. But I can't see any way that we could actually get you in front of a court to say, hey, the surface world is actually mine. And so then he says, "Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to go out and start committing crimes because then that will get me into a courthouse and then I'll be able to do my whatever I'm going to do. So we've got a nice montage of him wrecking all sorts of havoc, including one that is clearly Samson tearing down the temple. (laughs) Matt gets into his daredevil get up and goes out to try to look for the rampaging submariner and he bounces off of the awning of an establishment called woodley's yes so (laughs) again with the little easter eggs uh which you know are are delightful daredevil somehow accidentally ends up in the water with submariner which he recognizes immediately was not a good idea (laughs) Uh, however 
Uh, and, and Daredevil's presence there means that the U.S. Air Force isn't going to drop any explosives because they know Daredevil's down there. How they know Daredevil's down there, I'm not entirely sure, but they do. But Namor grabs Daredevil's seemingly inert body uh, underwater and tosses him up into the air. Namor comes up to surrender because, once again, this was his plan the entire time. He ends up in court, and, of course, Nelson and Murdoch are still his lawyers, even though, you know, they didn't take his case earlier, so, you know, I'm going to go for somebody else. Uh, but then, meanwhile, in the middle of the court case, Lady Dorma comes in and uh, lets Namor know that Krang has started a rebellion. This was the whole point of him getting on Namor's case about being weak with the surface people, as he wanted Namor to go up and be make himself busy so Krang could take over. So at this point, Namor is like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. Just starts kicking everybody away. But then, um, you know, Matt's like, look, this is what you wanted. You got, you have your chance. You got to hang out and do this thing. And Namor is like, okay, 24 hours. That's all I'll give you. And then it turns out the judge is like, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to get back to this case till next week. So <laughs> <laughs> they're like, um, this isn't going to sit well. So once they tell Namor, he just busts out of jail and starts getting into a bit of a skirmish with the army uh, in the city here. Daredevil, meanwhile, talks about his grappling hook. So, <laughs> um, and uh, here's what gets me. He says, I've been waiting for a chance to try out my new cane cable. I complained in previous issues that... They were not adequately explaining how he gets around town and that it made no sense at all how he was getting around town and how, in fact, it will never make any sense at Daredevil how he's getting around town. But in this issue, they're like, OK, guys, we are going to explain how he is getting around town. We will have him think about it for a while. Think about it. We'll show him doing it. It's going to make total sense. So so go ahead and explain so what he said. So he says, all I need do is wield it as a fly casting fisherman would towards any building within reach of its miniature grappling hook. It's silent, swift, and simple enough to be completely foolproof. Okay, if they hadn't tacked on that last phrase, simple enough to be completely foolproof, then I would have just breezed on by this. I'm like, ah, comic book logic, whatever. But I'm like, no, even my eight-year-old brain wouldn't have been able to say, oh, yeah, that looks completely foolproof. <laughs> it looks extremely <laughs> brand, in fact. It looks extremely yes. hazardous. It's like yes. you are taking your life in your hands every time you try to fling yourself from building to building using a miniature grappling hook hidden in your blind man's cane. Yes, and, you know, I, I, I posted about this on uh, on Facebook, and I have always assumed that his name was Angel, but I think I've heard some people pronounce it Angel, but anyway, Angel or Angel Medina. The wonderful artist who was the artist on Dreadstar and Warlock and the Infinity Watch. Yeah. Yeah, he, he he took uh, he took umbrage to, <laughs> to uh, me calling out that whole foolproof thing. And, uh, and I was a little bit like, oh, I, I was I was since he interacts with our page sometimes on on the Internet. I was hoping to ask him to be a guest at some point. And now I think he doesn't like me. But who knows? Uh, so, yes, Mr. Medina, if you're out there, we would love to have you on as a guest of the show. Anyway, Daredevil has some kind of a smoke screen that he's using to even up the odds. So. Namor can't see him. Daredevil uses his cable to hook Namor's ankle, and then Namor just starts flying up in the air, and Daredevil's like, hmm, I didn't count on this. I'm like, you didn't? Like, what? Okay. But then, uh, so Daredevil climbs up his own rope, 
and then grabs onto Namor's wing ankles so he can't fly. I'm just like, are his wing ankles not super strong, super strong the way everything else is? They just made a Namor movie, and I thought they would not go for having him fly using wings on his ankles, but who oh boy did they. They yes. went ahead and gave him full-on hummingbird wings on his ankles that uh, were flapping like crazy the whole time he was on screen in Wakanda Forever, which I thought worked okay. Um, yes. It worked better than I thought it would, but still wasn't great. Yes, yeah. For for a uh, portrayal of a classic character that has been that people have had some somewhat legitimate complaints about, they were like, okay, well, we're going to be messing with this other stuff with his presentation because of various legitimate reasons that we've got, including the fact that essentially, you know, Aquaman, the Aquaman movie, he was basically Namor. <laughs> you know? So what are you going to do at this point? We're going to be messing with various things here, but one thing we'll do, we'll give you the ankle wings and yes. not mess with them at all. Those will be just as advertised in the comics. So anyway, they end up in a construction site, which is always a nice, handy, convenient place for super folks to end up for these sorts of things. Daredevil ends up using a wrecking ball that was clearly already set up to wreck something and hooked up for, you know, when the thing closed and knocks Namor over. They've got a big fight that ends up involving a lot of, I don't know, construction or destruction equipment, <laughs> the yeah. demolition equipment that's in there. There's a light pole that's knocked over. Daredevil ends up making a lasso out of the electrical wire, which seems unwise. And then he goes and tries to electrocute uh, Namor and Namor's walking away. And then he's like, okay, you know what? This is the bravest surface person I have ever faced. Like, you know, I've faced Fantastic Four, I've faced the Avengers. And yet this dude who has no superpowers is the most courageous one that I've seen. So as a tribute to him, basically, I will just go ahead and leave the city and not get into any more fights with uh, the army or police or anything. And I'm like, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Yeah, to be fair, that's just your whole goal in the first place. So you're not really being as noble as you're pretending to be here. (laughs) Right, it's it's more like, what am I doing? I need to go back and get take care of Warlord Krang. <laughs> In the end, there's then just a little bit of the soap opera stuff with, uh, you know, Matt accidentally catching Karen when she falls. And, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could hold you in my arms. And she's like, oh, you know, can it really be possible that he's not actually blind? And, you know, this, that, and the other, and, you know, okay. But uh, yeah, this is probably the well, I don't know. This is uh, arguably some of the best stuff we're going to get out of Wally Wood during his brief stint at uh, at Marvel. There are going to be some other good stuff. The castle. There's going to be a castle that he's going to be getting into at in some point here. When Doctor Doom gets his own book as yes. one half of Astonishing Tales, Wally Wood is the writer-artist on that and does some beautiful work. Uh, yes. Yes, I, I, I am not a fan of this run of Woods on Marvel Comics. But yes, I have seen I haven't read through those, but I've seen some of them. And I'm like, this is what they should have been doing with Wally Wood. And yeah, you're right. Submariner series with all the stuff going on in Atlantis would have also just been fantastic for him to work with. But this is what we got. I think this is a gorgeous issue. I think that this is and I think it's a well-written, well-drawn issue. I think this is an excellent issue. I mean, it's bizarre like to have Daredevil <laughs> fight Submariner. It's not a natural antagonism, but the idea of Submariner wanting to work through the law and, you know, hiring Matt as a lawyer and then Matt realizing, you know, my client's going crazy. I've got to try to stop him. I thought that was all a solid story construction. And the fights are awesome. You know, it's got it's hard to write a fight in which Daredevil and Namor can have a legitimate fight, but 
involving the wrecking crew equipment, involving various things, makes it work. I think the new costume looks fantastic. Oh, yeah. Showing the action. I think he's more fluid in the action this issue. I think this is a classic issue. I think this is a great issue. And certainly, you know, the best page of the issue is the first page when you just have Bollywood getting his kingdom on. It's like, oh, that's what you should be doing, Bollywood. You shouldn't be in the city. You know, you were not made for cities. One thing that I'll say is that, you know, yes, I agree with you. This is a really, really great looking issue. And the story works better than, I mean, a lot of other stories we're going to be reading this month. <laughs> but yes. when it comes down to me not necessarily being a big fan of Wally Wood's superhero stuff in general, and these books in particular, on page five, panel one, where Submariner just busts out of the Nelson and Murdoch offices out through an outer wall and actually come to think of it i guess they're going to have a big insurance bill (laughs) come to think of it that position that namor is in that's just we're in a world where comic books are being defined by jack kirby and soon to be john buscema and these things just have these incredibly over exaggerated kinds of motions and that sort of needs to be there for me to work as a superhero and you know you've got things like this where it's like that should be and just stunning panel and it looks like he's an action figure yeah yeah i can see what you're saying yeah not enough elasticity in the figures i would say wood's number one acolyte in when we were growing up was jerry ordway and Jerry Ordway, you know, was very similar to Wood. And that looks very much like an Ordway panel. Ordway would draw Superman busting through walls a lot, but often they would look a little a little bit like this, maybe a little stiff. But I loved Ordway and I like I like this this wood issue. I did definitely think this was an issue where Daredevil's like, oh no, Prince, you know, Namor the Submariner is destroying the city. Only I can stop him. I'm like, uh, dude, there's so many other superheroes in New York City. <laughs> uh, the Fantastic Four are going to show up in two seconds to stop him. You can just stay at home. Nobody else shows up. I guess everybody else was busy. And yeah, I just think it's just great on page 19 where, you know, you've got Daredevil, you know, crawling after Submariner. Submariner is walking away and Daredevil is just crawling along the ground trying to stop him. And that's what impresses Namor so much. I think that's really well drawn by would uh you know that sense of desperation and and i think i think a great handling of the character of of namor as well yes and Daredevil. well yes yes absolutely but i'm just saying that like namor in particular it's just you know it has his arrogance and his short-temperedness but also his nobility he's the kind of person who will be good to his word and and you know if if an enemy commands his respect he will go ahead and show him the respect that he deserves Okay, I think this is an excellent issue. I think this is the best issue of Daredevil we have gotten so far. And yes. uh, we will not have wood on the book much longer, but then we'll have some good pencilers come along afterwards. So we'll see how those turn out. All right. All right, let's go ahead and do Fantastic Four number 37, one of my favorite issues, the ti- a Titanic tale tinged with marvelous Marvel magic, Behold a Distant Star. Interestingly, they don't give us much value on the cover. They've been sort of doing these coy covers recently. They're showing the Fantastic Four landing on an alien world, but they're not showing whose world it is or what the antagonism is here but uh so then we begin the issue they are preparing for this wedding i feel like the wedding is still several months away in comic terms but every issue they are they are getting ready now they're trying on tuxes at the end of this issue they are rehearsing with the preacher they are ready to go but while ben and johnny are trying on tuxes reed accidentally shoots his power ray at johnny causing him to flame on and burn up his tux wasn't very good of reed but then reed goes in to see sue and Sue is really upset. And he's like, uh, hi, honey, I brought you some flowers. Why are you so upset? 
And she's like, Reed, I love you and we're going to get married. But I feel like before we get married, I should revenge myself on the alien race that killed my father. <laughs> and he's like, what now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so uh, meanwhile, one thing about that gun um, that that Reed has, uh, we, he, it describes how it works at one point. He says, to put it simply, it's a variation of a power amplifier. It draws energy from an unknown source from somewhere beyond the confines of our solar system and converts it into raw, usable power. And I'm like, oh, good. Well, since we can be absolutely assured that that power isn't being used by somebody for some good reason, <laughs> or <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Power comes from somewhere. I don't know. You know who cares? You know, just does what it needs to do. Yes, exactly. So then Sue's like, yeah, I want to get revenge on the entire squirrel race before we get married. And Reed's like, um, okay, anything <laughs> to have the marriage happen. So I guess we'll do that. So then we cut to the squirrel world. So we have never really gotten into the ruling structure of the squirrel world before. And I've said before, the one thing I always like about Stanley Comics is that he frequently has complex ruling structures in place and his alien races that, you know, has some good people and some bad people. And here we see Verat who is the son-in-law of, uh, or future son-in-law of the ruler of the scrolls, and he is going to marry Annelle, the daughter of the ruler of the scrolls, and... And he... I do have to say that this this couple is way too human, human handsome for a scroll. I mean, yes. like, where are their ridged chins? Where are, you know, it's like, yeah, they've got slightly pointy ears, but, you know, come on, these are aliens. Now you're just, like, coloring them green. I'm <laughs> giving them a well, pointy ear. But they're not green in my comic. They're green oh, really? in yours. Yeah, what what color are they there? They're pale yellow. It's like, aren't these supposed to be scrolls? Like, they're not wrinkly. They don't, They their ears aren't huge. They're pointy, but they're not huge. They're not even green. But they'll turn green later in the issue. But for most of the issue, they'll be yellow. Weird. So then... Well, wait, what are they actually saying here? Yeah, well, yeah, Mar Marat is going and hunting a bunch of wild beasts where Kirby just has tons of fun imagining these wild beasts on the, on the scroll homeworld. But we just get to see how cruel Marat is by the fact that he's just going and strafing these animals, like, you know, not even really hunting, just like, hey, let and, me shoot those things. And we can see that Annette was much nicer and she says, oh, why do I love you? So it's cruel and heartless. So anyway, so then cut back to the Earth. And Reed's like, uh, hi, everybody. I guess we're going to the scroll world and uh, I guess committing genocide or something. Um, <laughs> somehow we've got to uh, get revenge on the entire race. I don't expect you guys to go. And the other people are like, of course we're going. Now, they did steal an enemy spaceship capable of intergalactic travel in a previous issue. that, And then we saw it sitting in their Baxter building a couple of times since then. So you'd think they'd take that, but no, instead they borrow a ship from NASA, NASA, not famous for its intergalactic travel, but, uh, they... <laughs> well, but I, I, I mean, I think they're tying it in with the space race and it's like, Oh, well, you know, if we're trying to develop this technology, they would definitely be cooperating with Mr. Fantastic here. Uh, and I like how they, they say, gosh, Reed, how do you ever get, N period, A period, S period, A period itself to go along with your plan. And as a little footnote, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. As kids who grew up in the 80s, I mean, I was born, what, like, like four months before the last moon landing, right? So, I mean, NASA has been a thing for my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, you have to explain, you know, uh, the idea that you have to explain to boys who are reading comics what NASA is. But I mean, I, it's a different time than, than we grew up, but it, it just jumped out at me. 
and they explain that Reed has souped up the ship. That you know yes. that NASA isn't just that they explain this is a prototype experimental NASA ship, and that Reed has souped it up. So then they go to the Andromeda Galaxy. They know that they can't just claim, oh, they have faster than light travel. So they introduce the concept of subspace. So we are going to be dealing with something for the next 50 issues or so of this book of this very confusing terminology of subspace versus the negative zone. They will use the term subspace to refer to what we think of as subspace as it will eventually become, which is this, which is a way to travel between galaxies, and then using subspace to refer to the negative zone which will be referred to as subspace for quite a while before they finally settle on the name of the negative zone. But we get Kirby getting to draw his first glimpse of subspace or the negative zone, this first wild energy barrier that they are passing through, which looks gorgeous. We then see another beautiful Kirby photo collage when they arrive in Skrull space. He's really doing a wonderful job. He obviously has some sort of actual model of the ship they're in. I don't know how he has a model of it. Uh, I'm I'm guessing that was probably clipped out of some sci-fi, you know, sci-fi magazine or something like that. And then, Maybe. you know, uh, but I, I love up at the top, Stan Lee actually claims that this is an actual photograph shot by basically a drone that they had sent outside of the craft in order to get this shot just for us. Yeah. <laughs> so they land on the squirrel planet. A bunch of squirrels attack the Fantastic Four, finding them, and then suddenly the Fantastic Four lose all their powers. So this is not good. They lose all their powers. They are put in a cell. Morat is looking in on them. Anel is like, oh, what are you, are you going to tell my father you've captured the Fantastic Four? And Morat's like, mm, yep, definitely going to do that. <laughs> definitely going to tell your father. Anyway, run along now, little lady. So then, of course, as soon as she's gone, he's like, no way I'm going to tell my father-in-law about this. This is my chance to shine. Anel believes him when he says, I'm going to tell your father. So then Morat is taunting BFF, but Anel then... This is seemingly hours or days later. It goes to her father, who is sitting around watching a bunch of acrobats on a three-dimensional hollow projector type thing, just as his way of relaxing at the end of the day with a beer, presumably. And then she's like, oh, what do you think when Rat told you about kidnapping the Fantastic Four? And he's like, he didn't tell me that. <laughs> and she's like, oh, he said he would. So then he's like, I'm going to go kick some ass. So Reed, of course, and this is inevitable, Reed has said to Morat, like, I will betray my fellow Fantastic Four and work for you, creating weapons. Now, the rest of the Fantastic Four is like, what? Reed, I can't believe you do that. How can you betray us like that? Now, I assume the Fantastic <laughs> Four are just really good actors at this point. Like, they can't be that stupid. Like, how many times has this happened? Hopefully, they have been going to Stanislavski acting lessons. They're in New York. They've got world-class acting lessons available to them. And hopefully that explains why they pretend to believe Reed when he says he's going to betray them. Reed, of course, builds the power ray again. And it's like going, I hate the Fantastic Four. In fact, I'll shoot them all with this power ray to show how much I hate them. And I'll even shoot myself with it. And then, of course, it gives them all their powers back. So then they are getting to a big fight with the squirrels. Sue, totally badass, grabbing the gun out of Marat's hand. At this point, Anel's dad shows up and it's like, uh, yeah, my daughter just told me you kidnapped them and that you told her that you tell me that you had them and you didn't do it. And then Marat's like, OK, I'm done with this. So you dare to force a showdown? Very well. We shall see which of us is stronger. Death to the king. And he tells his men to attack the king. And <laughs> but they're about to get into a big fight when suddenly the soldiers are all going to fire at Morat. Anel runs in the way. Sue then. Now, Sue does not know yet that Morat is the person who ordered the death of her father. But Sue throws up a force field to protect Anel, but not Morat. And the way it looks, <laughs> it looks like she totally could have saved Morat. But... Uh, <laughs> 
she does not she saves it now and of course at this point the scroll king is ex- you know so happy with fantastic four it's like oh you throw force field and you save my daughter who we were about to accidentally kill and but i like how even then he's not like because you have saved my daughter i will never invade you again he's just like well because you saved my daughter and because the very sight of you is repugnant to me <laughs> he says he says what i must be grateful to an earthling though the very sight of you is repugnant to my eyes you may ask any boon to me you have asked that right and then they go okay well first of all we ask that you hand over to us presumably so we can you know torture and kill the person who killed sue's father and he's like well that's easy you just we just killed the guy who killled her father that was Marat's idea and then they're like oh okay well that's good and then he says, he says, now my debt to you is paid with the slaying of rat. Earth need fear the squirrels no longer. It was he who craved to conquer the earth. To me, you are alien savages. You are beneath my imperial notice. Now go while you still may. So I like how, you know, they make it. This isn't just a debt of honor that he has just total contempt for the Fantastic Four. So Fantastic Four is like, hey, man, we came to kill a dude. We killed the dude. We're going home. <laughs> go back to Earth. And they land in their place just in time to practice with a priest we've never had much indication of any sort of religious affiliation for the fantastic four before now but there is a priest possibly an episcopalian priest well yes he says my goodness the vicar warned me that i'd find you rather unusual so this seems to be an episcopalian priest perhaps goes ahead and rehearses the wedding with them the end yeah yeah this is this is a really great issue Lots of good stuff in here. I mean, I, I I have a little bit of a take a little bit of issue with these scrolls not looking like scrolls, but that's a minor thing. Um, you got the feeling it's just like if we're going to show two people who are in love with each other, then we can't have them look like scrolls. <laughs> we can't use scrolls <laughs> in love is just too weird of a concept. They've got to look a lot more human than we've been making them look. So at one point when they're losing their power, when Thing is trying to see if he's still powerful, he has a big punch and uh, it says whap. And then he says, did you hear that? Nothing but a puny whap. Me, who used to never get anything less than a baroom, or at least a kapow. <laughs> a little bit breaking the fourth wall in terms of the sound effects and stuff like that, which uh, I, I kind of like. Um, on page 10, last panel on page 10, once again, I always like finding bizarre slang that I have never heard of before. So on page 10, Thing says, hot zig. Let's get out of here. Okay. C-I-G. Any, any, any clue? Any ideas? Nope. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where I was with this stuff, too. Uh, so at one point, uh, of course, um, Stan Lee has got to come up with the silly names for the weapons here. So at one point, Marat is saying, they can still be stopped with our Demolo guns. Like, I guess, demolition guns? But, you know. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah, uh, that'll work. They're discussing their adventure they just had as they're heading back towards Earth. And uh, you can't really see who is saying what inside the ship, but there's a discussion going on. says, it's a different galaxy with a different race of living beings. And yet it seems that ambition and hate and love are the same everywhere in the universe, which is really kind of what you were talking about with, you know, you know, it's a Stanley comic. If all of those things exist in any different, in any one group of a, you know, of a civilization somewhere, yeah. perhaps we're, perhaps we're not really so different from others, either on earth or in the endless void of space. And the day all of mankind realizes that lesson, we shall come a step closer to brotherhood and universal peace. Which once again, you know, goes to the whole idea that, you know, 
I think as we observed, it seemed to be the Cuban Missile Crisis that got uh, Stan Lee to orient himself more towards, hey, maybe we need to cool it with the Cold War thing, less the commies are coming to get us, and more, maybe we need to figure this stuff out so we don't blow each other up. And um, yeah, so I, I just I just thought those were nice specific call-outs to that. Yeah, that was great. I, I like it a lot. It's, I think it's you know one of my favorite things about these comics. And uh, I think this is a great issue for really deepening the Skrull empire as, you know, making it a much richer, uh, less one-dimensional villain. A lot of writers and artists of the years will get a lot of good use out of these characters, and we'll see more of it now over the, over the years. One of the weird things about this issue, they never named the Skrull world, and in fact, it is never named until it dies. It is finally destroyed by Galactus, and even as it is being destroyed by Galactus 20 years from now, never named, oddly enough. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. the home world. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to Journey into Mystery with Thor. Journey into Mystery 115, a new experience in greatness, the vengeance of the Thunder God. And we see on the cover that we're going to be getting more absorbing man action here. But I got to say that shot of Loki on the cover is just really weird. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Kirby was trying to go for there, but whatever it was, he somehow did not end up achieving it, uh, whether, whether uh, through his fault or somebody else's you've got journey into mystery taking up room and well you've got with taking up room you've got the mighty <laughs> thor taking up room you've got loki taking up room you've got the vengeance of the thunder god taking up room so that by the time you actually get to the action of the cover zoo solo thor literally has to limbo to make the cover work thor has to <laughs> limboing under all of this wall of text in order to uh, make the cover work that is a good point. It, he is literally limboing there, isn't he? Okay, so when last we left, Thor had been pulled away from a battle with the Absorbing Man by Balder because Loki had kidnapped Jane. Apparently finds them on top of some tower. We aren't really explained uh, where this tower is or how they got there, but, you know, that's where that's where they were as we uh, as we came into this. I thought that the credits were especially funny in this issue. Yeah, so. that, I, I was just I was just realizing I hadn't done that yet. <laughs> Story by Stan Lee, the sage of the Marvel age, penciling by Jack Kirby, the rage of the Marvel age, inking by Frankie Ray for his wage in the Marvel age, lettering by Artie Simak from his cage in the Marvel age. I love this. <laughs> Thor and Loki get into this battle. Loki has the sword that he's talking about being as powerful as Mjolnir. I don't know if we ever really see much of this sword again in the future. We then cut back to Earth and see the reporter, Harris Hobbs, that we met last issue, run into some highway cops. And he then is telling the highway cops about what's going on at the Absorbing Man. Crusher Creel, of course, looks fantastic. Love yes. the look of this guy. He finds this nice mid-century modern suburban, exurban kind of house in the woods. Of course, the businessman uh, is coming home from the day and the wife's like, oh, OK, I'll have dinner ready for you before you know it. Uh, but then in comes the Absorbing Man and uh, basically is telling him, you know, hey, I'm I'm <laughs> you got to put up with me now. OK, so back to the fight between Thor and Loki. It's, you know, once again, a, a, a an epic fight. But then uh, eventually 
they are divided by a big chasm opening up before them and a real amazing just sort of rupture of the earth. And who is standing off in the distance? Well, it's just a shadowy uh, silhouette of a figure. So we have no idea who this could be, right? I mean, right. if you look at that silhouette, there's no way we could ever guess who that is, right? <laughs> Odin is really finally coming into his fantastic hat thing. This is this is this is really over the top, and I love it. Yes, because Loki had kidnapped Jane. Loki is then able to say, "Hey, look, Thor was you know fighting bad guys on Earth, but then he like left in the middle of the fight to bring Jane here, and you're not allowed to bring mortals to Asgard, and he's wanting to make her immortal. He's being bad, and you need to punish him, Dad." Odin, of course, as always dim-witted when it comes to Loki's evil. Uh, I was like, oh, yes, okay, I will punish Thor. Odin says, you've got to face the trial of the gods. So this sounds like a big deal. And yes. Thor is like, okay, well, I understand, but I've got some stuff to wrap up. Can you give me 48 hours first? And Odin's like, yep, sure, I'll, I'll give you 48 hours. He then takes Jane back home, gives her the gift of forgetfulness apparently uh he's got the power to make people forget things who knew thor heads out to try and resume his fight we see out in the suburbs the husband trying to reassert his mastery over his home and telling crusher creel what to do and what not to do he doesn't like it so the uh, housewife throws a vase or something like that at the absorbing man and then he turns into glass now it doesn't seem like the best idea glass no, ship okay i'm gonna show off my absorbing man powers look i can become glass and it's like quick break him break him quickly <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, glass can be quite hard, you know, but, but then the weird thing is, he says he's made of glass. Not anymore, I ain't. I can become raw silk just by touching this curtain. I'm like, is that an improvement? Yes. <laughs> um, into a heap on the floor. Right. But no guy wants to be made out of silk, especially when he, and then he turns himself into bronze and then he's, you know, uh, just basically going berserk and trying to scare the two of them the the husband is you know very much trying to show the strong stoic face of uh you know you you leave my wife alone we then see that um our scenes have come together now thor arrives at the house there's a whole big uh swat team outside trying to coordinate what they're gonna do and there's harris hobbs as well thor basically says hey everybody stay away i will take care of this and harris hobbs is like what? I'm the reporter that found this whole thing. If you think I'm leaving, <laughs> you're not. You brought the dynamite to throw at Crusher Creole as issue. <laughs> this is the only you're just coasting on my dynamite, pal. <laughs> Crusher Creole has forced the uh, the woman of the house to make him dinner and he's not getting enough food fast enough. So he grabs her wrist at one point and says, you know, be quick about it. And then at that point, that's too much for the husband. And he actually just, you know gives a, a right hook to Crusher Creel and, you know, surprising him to and knocks him over at that point. Um, and this is a question I've often had. Can Crusher Creel turn into steel because he's hanging on to his steel ball and chain? And in this issue, it seems the answer is yes. Although I don't think that most writers tend to, I think most writers tend to think of that as a cheat in the future. And so they don't tend to do that much. So he is now going to presumably kill this guy who owns the house here. 
But then Harris Hobbs shows up and distracts him, like gets his attention enough to get him away from the couple and out to where the SWAT team and Thor are. And there is just a fantastic uh, epic fight scene, uh, particularly a panel that takes up the top half of page 11 is just peak Kirby fight scene right there. We, we still see every now and then some strange powers coming from uh, Thor's hammer. By my power over nature's elements, let an irresistible force of heat trap him within an unbreakable vice. And then you see his hammer is look, looks like a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, that's not something we're used to seeing. Yes, and uh, and then so then he, but he doesn't think he's like, oh, that's right, absorbing man can absorb anything. So now he's basically the Human Torch. Okay, so what are we going to do now? The police are trying to be involved. Thor is trying to go ahead and take care of him. And then at one point, Crusher Creel just says, you know what? I can absorb every ounce of strength from the earth around me. So he's just like spread eagle on the ground uh, near rocks and dirt and grass and everything. And so then he starts becoming this big conglomeration of iron and rock and wood and uh you know looks like a really horrific kind of thing and of course the the iron parts have rivets on them you know because that's that's because that's how iron is in its natural form yes um and i think this is the first time we've seen the absorbing man start to grow giant when he is absorbing something that is particularly big and this is something that you know writers always just seem to use or not use as it needs to happen or needs to not happen in their stories it's always been very unclear when he grows and when he stays the same size Yes. Thor then says, "Okay, you've made your choice. I've given you your chance. I am now going to use the power of my hammer to transmute the elements that you have turned yourself into. Okay, Uh, so that's now a power that Thor has. And uh, so what he does, he transmutes the cells of Crusher Creel's body into helium. Um, or maybe some of the elements he was absorbing, he turns them into helium. And so then Thor is just pointing up in the air and he's like, oh yeah, he's become lighter than air. He's swiftly being drawn into the atmosphere as I planned. And uh, I swear, Kirby, I I imagine just thought that, you know, this uh, last panel of his appearance on page 15 was absorbing man is just gonna be like oh he's off in space now he's done bye but uh stan lee has to be like well you know in that gaseous state he can survive indefinitely i shall allow him to drift through space until the unearthly power that possesses is all but a useless forgotten memory then he shall return to earth assume his rightful form and finish out the years of, pri- of his prison sentence. Thus, the absorbing man will be heard of no more. It's like, you know, Stan, just don't don't try so hard on some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's trying, to, he's trying to stay within the comics code. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know. But then it's just like, yeah, okay, wrap it up. Yeah, that sentence could have been half as long. Yeah. In the end, Thor has to bug out of there quickly, goes back and checks on Jane before heading back to Asgard. But then while he's checking on Jane, he sees the really creepy floating eyes of odin behind his head your time has come thunder god the trial awaits thee once again one of these things where these characters whether it's reed or odin or professor xavier or you know uh any number of these characters it's like yeah you're kind of not acting like a hero here buddy you're, you're kind of acting like a dictator and at that point we see thor heading out to go face the trial of the gods whatever that may be and we will find out about that next issue yes 
So I thought this issue was great. Uh, yes, I, I do too. This is not the only time this month when Stanley seems to be a bit exasperated by trying to explain things that are not the way that he wanted them to be shown in the story. And so that that's one of the things that jumped out at me with the whole, you know, trying to explain about, about the whole helium thing. But that's really that's really nitpicking uh, way too much based on other things other than this story. But no, this, this story is fantastic. I mean, like I said, Absorbing Man's always great fighting loki and all sorts of that stuff is always tons of fun yeah i think that they've got a real keeper of a villain who will go on to become a great villain not just for thor he can show up he can be a great hulk villain he can be a great avengers he can take on all of the avengers he can take on he's going to be just a wonderful character he's going to be great um in secret wars and then he's going to get a girlfriend who's going to make an even better character in some ways and I think that he is great. Uh, this is beautiful inking by Frank Ray. In this issue, he has quickly be he has quickly become uh, someone who I like just as much as Chick Stone. A uh, really great mm -hmm. inker. Unfortunately, I think this is, if I remember correctly, the final non coeta issue. The final issue where Coeta is only inking the back half of the book and it's not inking the front half of the book. And it is a heartbreaker. Say goodbye to the gorgeous <laughs> art on the front of the book we have had for the last 30 issues or so. We're going to have greatly diminished art on the front half of this book from now on for the next three years or so. This is a fabulous farewell to Coletalis Kirby pencils on the front of the book. <laughs> it's a beautiful issue. Yes. So then we're going to move on to Tales of Asgard. Um, so Tales and of Asgard, I got to say... I feel like every month there's one book where I read it and then I take my notes the next week and I've completely forgotten it in between yes. reading it and taking my notes. And in this case, it is Tales of Asgard. I found this to be an entirely forgettable story and I could not remember at all what was happening when I went back to take my notes on it. You, you are not alone. So, uh, essentially, uh, young Thor and young Loki, when I say young, they're, you know, probably... 18, 20, something like that, uh, in human terms. You know, who knows how old that makes them, actually, as, as Guardians. They are taking on a rampaging storm giant, and it's them and a, uh, you know, company of uh, soldiers. And Thor goes bravely into battle. For Asgard, he says, as he smashes a big boulder being thrown at them by the storm giant. Loki's like... Uh, dude, I'm too important to go ahead and get my stuff, myself in danger here. I'm going to hang out over here. This is, you know, that's, this is what a smart person would do. Just sit over here and let everyone else do this stuff. Also, you know, I don't like it that Thor is the favored son. I don't like it that, uh, so I'm, uh, so I'm going to do something to try and hurt Thor's rep here. So he's going to use his sword to uh, cast a spell which will allow the uh, storm giant Gahan, I guess, G-H-A-N, Gahan, Gahan. Something like that. Will let him win the battle and therefore make Thor look bad. Uh, now, I don't know how they colored this in yours, but it looks really unclear how much of this storm giant is furs that he's wearing and how much is just him having a furry, hairy torso. It just, the colorist cannot make out what Vince Coletta did with this to figure out where his pants end and his chest begins. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, the colorist gets definitely confused here by what Coletta is doing. But like, because yeah, yeah on, on page two, one of the shoulders is colored in as if it is covered in fur and the other one is not. Yeah. But then yeah. on other panels, the shoulder is not. Yeah, oh, no, it's very confused. On page, on page three, panel two, he looks like he's in a whole furry suit. 
Uh, And then page three, panel three, it looks like he's got his belt right up under his armpits. Uh, (laughs) It's just, yeah, what's going on? So then apparently the Asgardians have some kind of sleep gas pellet, sleep gas bomb that they're going to catapult or trebuchet or whatever (laughs) over to the storm giants. So they, uh, they use this and then they, which seems like they would, something they would consider to be a cowardly weapon, but you know, who knows? Anyway, they go over there once they do use the sleep gas and uh, they're like, okay, where's the storm giant? Like, he's not here. What the heck? And you know, Thor is like, this guy didn't have magic powers, but that's the only way he could have disappeared. Huh, what could have happened? Yeah, you guys are going to have to figure out about Loki one of these days, guys. So Loki turned Gahan into an eagle to hide him from the company. And Loki, meanwhile, is like, oh, I'll stay back here and keep looking for him. Gahan then is turned back into a storm giant self, and he now has sworn his debt to Loki. So Loki has now had a double victory here of taking a victory away from Thor and beginning his process of getting allegiance from various anti-Asgard forces that are out there in this in the um the nine world. Yes, it, it, I was once again just sort of like, wait, what happened in here? But you know, this is, I think, a a neat point to where loki is coming from and how he's developing as a character that you know is decided at this point okay this is bs my deal that i've got here i am not treated with respect i am not loved as much by my father i'm sick of it and i am gonna go ahead and start doing something about it and yeah uh, it's it's well done yeah uh, yeah i agree ultimately once you actually sit down and reread the story it's uh <laughs> it's a fine story yeah shooting trebucheting sleeping gas isn't the normal uh asgardian method of attack but uh it's it's perfectly fine story it's fine nicely drawn by kirby poorly inked by coletta certainly the gon's arm on the bottom of page five is an absolute coletta horror story <laughs> it's like is that supposed to be hair or just cross-hatching you don't even know coletta well coletta is someone you should really look at to figure out how to break up your blacks so that they're not you know just big shapeless shadows you know so that you can right uh, that, that exactly that's what jim shooter famously <laughs> told you yes exactly infamously told you yes anyway but uh but a perfectly fine story it's okay internet famously or podcast famously <laughs> yes <laughs> Okay, not famous at all. Yeah, I think we're good to move on from that. Now we come to a very mixed issue. Well, now we'll go ahead and take a break. Um, oh, right. Yes. That was four issues. We generally split these months up. So we do the first four books of the month in one podcast and the next four books in another podcast. So that will be the end of this episode of Marvel Reread Club. Take care and we will see you next time. Stay safe out there, everybody. Okay, Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.